G'day humans, welcome to the safe space for dangerous ideas and sometimes I speak with someone for an hour and I think, how has this been an hour and how do I have, have I covered so little of what we could potentially talk about because this person is so interesting and they know so much more than I do about all of the important things that there is to know about, that there is to know about, that there are to know about. It's a plural, Zeps. Susan Naiman is a philosopher, not just a philosopher, arguably one of the world's most influential living philosophers. She's an American. She went to Harvard and she studied under John Rawls, who is one of the most influential philosophers of the 20th century. Um, And I wanted to talk to her now because she's a leading expert on the Enlightenment and on Enlightenment values. And that may sound a little bit stuffy, but In a nutshell, it's probably the thing that we're at most risk of losing in the current culture wars. Both Trumpy conservatives who have a disregard for institutions, you know, we hear a lot about this, like, oh, what about the norms and institutions that are being subverted by, you know, alt-right parties or far-right parties or by Trump trying to overturn the election? And norms and institutions feels a bit stale to me, as does the word the Enlightenment. But on both right and the woke left, there's a current fever pitch hysteria that strikes me as unconducive to calm, thoughtful, reasoned, scientific analysis of the situations that we're in, and therefore unconducive to finding resolutions to some of the big challenges that our planet faces. Uh, be they social and political ones or environmental ones like climate chaos. We're just not doing a very good job of having the big conversations that we need to have in the kinds of ways that very smart people would want to have them. And Susan is someone who understands why, because she understands how culture shifted from being a, a world in which we were just tribes arguing with one another to a world in which reason, uh, a belief in progress, a belief in the universalism of humankind, uh, a belief in justice as distinct from power, where these values started coming to the fore. And that is what she studies. That is what the Enlightenment meant. And that is what is currently being undermined by today's fads on the left. It's a total coincidence that Susan's new book is called Left is Not Woke, She is not an anti-woke crusader. Uh, We arranged to speak with each other months ago before I even knew about the existence of this book. In fact, I was most interested to speak with her because even though she's an American and was educated at Harvard, she now lives in Germany. She's the director of the Einstein Forum. She's a member of the Berlin Brandenburg Academy of Sciences. These are all very illustrious things that you don't need to know about, but trust me, they're important. And So she's done a lot of study about the German relationship to its Nazi past. She has a book called Evil in Modern Thought, and another book called Moral Clarity, and another book called Learning from the Germans. And at a time when we're all trying to wrestle with the sins of our forefathers, I thought it would be useful to go to ground zero of national guilt, Germany, and hear from an expert on moral clarity and the enlightenment about how that country has dealt with it. This uh, conversation ranges all over the place. I really hope you enjoy it as much as I do. I just want to sit down with Susan every day and pick her brain. Uh, please enjoy it for the one and only Susan Naiman.
about the the general values of the Enlightenment? I, I think, I mean, I want to talk about national guilt because um, I don't know if you're aware that, but this year Australia is going to vote in a referendum to change to amend the constitution to recognise Indigenous and First Nations people, and so there's a lot of conversation here what about what does that mean, recognition? What that? I mean, I know that yeah. there are you know things going on but yeah so there'll be there'll be a couple of parts to it the most important one being that it will establish an assembly of first nations representatives who will uh debate and then advise parliament on uh bills that may impact first nations people so um that's called the voice basically a way of providing a, a, a an institutional and constitutional forum through which First Nations communities can advise Parliament. And then it'll just remedy the fact that there is no re- there is no mention in the Constitution of the fact that this uh, landmass had been inhabited for tens of thousands of years prior to the 1780s. So uh, those, are the, those are the two things. And needless to say, that has sparked a conversation about some of the First Nations groups say we shouldn't be given a uh, an assembly until we have a treaty and you know we've never ceded sovereignty to this land so the the sort of you know the more extreme voices on the indigenous side will say uh this is window dressing what we actually need is a treaty and then the opponents on the other side will say why are we creating what smells a lot like another chamber of parliament essentially for one particular identity when they're the majority of Australians have arrived since the Second World War anyway, and we're a multi-ethnic uh, melting pot, and so this this runs counter to small L liberal ideals. And then behind right. it all, I feel there's a backdrop of what exactly do the descendants of people who were colonizers owe to the descendants of the colonized. And so I, I was initially intrigued. I mean, I've sort of va- been vaguely aware of your f- philosophy ever since uh, I was at university, but I was particularly intrigued when my friend and colleague Stan Grant, who works at the ABC as well, mentioned you in the context of national guilt and how a country reckons with its own uh, reckons with its own past. So I wasn't going to start there, but now that you've asked me about the <laughs> the First Nations stuff, why don't we start there? How, how do you think about it? We can start there, and uh, what I have to say is that I'm, um, for the first time in my life, in the process of a deep rethinking of um, a book that I published just about three years ago, Um, and the book was called Learning from the Germans, and in it, I argued that other countries have a lot to learn about the way the Germans have reckoned with their historical crimes. That is it in a nutshell. Um, but it's not a theoretical book. It's a book in which I do lots of interviews with people both in Germany and in the deep south of the United States, which was my main focus. I mean, the, the thesis was true for other countries, but uh, even at the time, my view was very much that um, these are not questions that you can give general, uh, you know, algorithms for want to deal with a historical crime here's the steps you follow because every culture is different and the nuances matter and the crimes are different okay so i wanted to by looking at these two cases examine in detail um what might look like a just and healing way of 
dealing with historical crimes. This has never happened to me before. This is perhaps the danger of philosophers mm. getting involved in, you know, <laughs> very, um, very timely topics. But in fact, as I keep quoting my uh, late friend Tony Judd, the historian, um, who in turn attributed the quote to somebody else, doesn't matter who, um, when the facts change, I change my mind. What do you do, sir? Mm. Um <laughs> and facts have changed both in uh, internationally, I think, as well as in Germany. My main focus has, um, you know, there, there's only a number of countries you can follow at once. Um, <laughs> so I, no, I, sure. You know, but what's the change, Susan? So the change is that I think, certainly in Germany, historical reckoning has gone haywire and germany's focus on its own crimes have been so intense that they have forgotten to look at the present of two countries that are extremely important to them uh and important politically at the moment one is russia and the other is israel um people have been asking themselves a lot there's been a lot of hand wringing and chest uh beating why didn't we see what Putin was doing earlier on? Yeah. And there's a cynical explanation, um, which I must say the media always loves cynical explanations. I don't, um, which says, well, the Germans were lazy. They were living on Russian gas and um, some people, some of them were getting rich on deals. This is true of our uh, ex-chancellor, um, <clears throat> Gerd Schröder. It is not true of the majority of uh, Germans who were arguing that, you know, after the Crimea, we we shouldn't exaggerate too much. There's an enormous amount of German guilt also towards Russia. Most people don't know outside Germany that, uh, first of all, that the Russians bore the brunt of the war, both in terms of contributing to the victory, but of having the most casualties. Mm. Germans do know this. It was 27 million dead members of the Soviet Union, about 14 million <clears throat> um, uh, civilians and about 13 million soldiers. Now, many of those people were, of course, Ukrainian, but at the time, that wasn't a distinction that anybody was paying attention to. And uh, so the feelings of good Germans, I'm not talking about people who weren't, you know, sensitive or didn't care, mm. was we uh, we owe the Russians something. We really, we devastated their country. I mean, it wasn't only the 27 million people killed. It was the basically laying waste to all the territory from uh, uh, Belarus to Moscow. Yeah. Okay, um, You know, tremendous amount of damage. And so the focus was on what the Germans had done wrong 75 or now going on 80 years ago, rather than what Putin was doing you know, since 2014 or, or even earlier. Mm. Okay? Um, and the same problem is even clearer with regard to Israel. Um, 
understandably enough, and this is something that I have praised and seen as mostly a unique and important historical development, um, Germany has focused on its crimes towards the Jews. It didn't want to initially, certainly West Germany didn't want to. It took about 40 years for uh, mainstream society to stop feeling as if they had been the worst victims of World War II. This sounds crazy to people who are outside Germany, but this was really <laughs> the German attitude. And, you know, you can see the argument, especially if you've lived here for a while and listened to what people say. They lost the war. Their country was divided. They lost seven million uh, dead. Their cities were in ashes. And on top of that, the Allies insisted in saying the, the war was their fault. Well, the war was their fault, okay? <laughs> but... Um, you know, that was the attitude in West Germany for a good 40 years by most of the people. And uh, to turn from that attitude towards an attitude that acknowledged, no, actually, we committed really you know, um, incredible crimes against the Jewish people was a new historical moment, okay? No other country had ever put its historical crimes in the center of its narrative. And Germany did that. And Susan, did that. Who, who did that? How did that happen? Yeah, it's a great question. Um, and it doesn't have a simple answer. First of all, there were groups in civil society, artists, intellectuals, church groups, who pushed for this for quite a long time. There was also East Germany. Once again, people don't know this, but uh, because we've accepted the idea, the completely false idea that communism and Nazism are variations of the same thing. So people often don't remember that East Germany was a genuinely anti-fascist country, that its leaders had spent the war either in exile or in concentration camps. So when they came back, they genuinely wanted to get rid of the old Nazis in their midst. Mm. Um, I have to say, there's a long chapter about this in my book, Learning from the Germans. Anybody who wants to start shouting now should please look it up. It was the most controversial chapter of the book, and I knew <laughs> it was going to be. So I asked three historians to fact check it. OK, mm. um, and it's, you know, it's just true that there were more old Nazis arrested, more executed, more and most importantly, pushed out of their jobs than happened in West Germany. OK, um, and there were things taught in the schools and there were hundreds of close to a thousand films made that were shown on television about the war and about the Holocaust. And this just didn't happen in West Germany. But sure. I mean, to be, to be fair, there may be two, several explanations for that, one of which is that the East Germans were more anti-Nazi, but the other of which is that they were more authoritarian and therefore had the ability and willingness to execute Nazis and uh, overhaul school curricula to their liking in no. a way that a liberal society wouldn't. Well, you see, um, you're right about that, although I, I don't want to emphasize the executions. There weren't that many of them. It's just that there were almost none in um, in West Germany, including people who were mass murderers. But, um, you know, yes, they were more authoritarian, but what 
you have to ask yourself is in a society which had lived for 12 years under Nazi propaganda, wasn't it right that the state should take over and take a very hard line and say, no, 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 this is not what we want you to believe. And um, I think that they should have taken a hard line. In any case, mm. um, to get back to your original question, um, yes, the the anti-fascist uh, move was sometimes instrumentalized by the East Germans, no question about it. But most governments instrumentalize their ideology. And this, the fact that they kept saying this and it was getting out, you know, over the wall, et cetera, et cetera, did have an impact on West Germany, even though West Germany wanted to dismiss this as propaganda. So mm. you had kind of two forces, one from West German civil society, another from uh, East Germany, which was holding, you know, trials in absentia for some of the main figures in the West German government whose Nazi past had been covered up, you had an, a lot of different influences. The student movement of the late 60s was terribly important. Mm. And at the certain at a certain point, the uh, you know the the weight of the accusations we have not dealt with our Nazi past mm. became too much for people to bear. And th there is a point in German <coughs> post-war history, 1985, where you can say that um, things change because the president, we have a different, the president is different from the chancellor, doesn't have much political power, but has a great deal of influence and moral influence in particular gave a speech that was much heralded as a kind of watershed where he sort of began by saying, yes, I know we all suffered during the war, but other people suffered more and it was our fault. Um, again, I was in Berlin at the time and I thought, you know, isn't this just like saying water is wet? Why does it need to be said? <laughs> this but, is, this is um, how I often feel, Susan, in, you know, I lived in New York for a dozen years for most of my adult yeah. life. And the, you know, conversations with people, I, I had a roommate who was from the deep South and conversations about slavery were quite eye opening. Like I thought, you know, he thought it was, he thought it was a really interesting and progressive thing to say that slavery was bad. <laughs> I was like, yeah, yeah, isn't that the first moral? Isn't like that the most obvious moral question? Like that's one of well, Unfortunately, what I did when I was writing this book was to compare what Germany had done and what was still the case in the United States, focusing on the Deep South. And you'd be amazed. I was doing this research in 2016, 2017, spent about half a year there. Um, you'd be amazed at how... Uh, how many people also still think it's progressive to mm, <laughs> to acknowledge say. that it was bad? And just to Susan, do you so when this was all happening in Germany and this was and the center of gravity was shifting from uh, a persecution complex to a recognition of the gravity of what the nation had done, the pushback to that was there an analog between that sort of pushback and I'm just thinking about the fact that at some point we will talk about wokeness and I'm trying to get in my head the uh -huh. the pushback that one hears now against 
wokeness or Black Lives Matter or First Nations issues in Australia, I mean, I'm talking about Black Lives Matter in America, is we don't want to have a sort of black armband view of our own history. You know, we are not an irredeemably white supremacist society. There are good things about our past as well. So, like, what form did that uh, instinct take in, in Germany? Well, that's a great question because um, people who were insisting on looking at the Nazi crimes, and I was there towards the end of that period, so I, you know, saw this in real time. Were saying, um, you know, these are people who want to dirty their own nest. You know, right. there's a German word for that, and you know, we we the, the, very very parallel. Um, you know, we we cannot. We cannot bring these things up. It's um, it's an insult to our parents who were, after all, only defending their homeland. I mean, you got people arguing that into you know up into about two thousand. It's quite mm. extraordinary. So yes, there was a lot of pushback and a lot of hostility. Um, and at a certain point, there did come to be a consensus. There was also there's something famous called the Historians Streit where you had serious historians saying, well, Stalin did it first, and actually, you know, worse things, you know, bad things always happen in war. We weren't worse than anybody else. Hmm. Um, so you did have a lot of pushback. And that's important, I think, to realize for our contemporary debates where the Germans are always, or the Nazis are always uh, depicted as the absolute epitome of, uh, you know, evil and horror and one uh in which there's some kind of absolute consensus that consensus didn't exist 25 years ago it really right, didn't right and it's important to know that on the other hand and this is i suppose where where some of my own views have been changing um there i do think that nations just like people need not only stories about perpetrators and victims they also need stories about heroes it's my actually my next book is going to be about heroism um and i think of this a bit in the way that i think of of people coming to term with terms with their personal history unless you're really unlucky and you came from a deeply abusive family, part of what it means to grow up is to sift through your own childhood memories and your understanding of what your parents did and what they gave to you, because we're all helpless, you know, basically helpless. The first 18 or 20 years of our lives, we have to take whatever frameworks our parents give them. And growing up is about looking at those and thinking, you know what, um, that I wouldn't have done and don't want to pass on to my children if I have some. But um, there are other things that I'm proud of and I'm glad my parents gave me. And I really look at national reckoning as very, very similar. I think that if you can't do some of that, if you can't find something in your national history that you want to take as your own, you're going to be in a lot of trouble. And I think most nations, however much violence and injustice they have, they usually have a fight against injustice. 
And those are the kinds of examples that we can look for. So, I mean, I'm not, I, I, I certainly wouldn't go all at all, all the way back to saying, uh, you know, Ron DeSantis in America, say, um, shut the doors, no black history, no, um, you know, whatever. Um, these are not subjects that we want to, we want children to learn. They're not things in our national history that we want to emphasize. Uh, I think they need to be learned rather than swept under the carpet and acknowledged. And I think that's part of a process of coming, of creating a healthier society. But when that's all we talk about, when all we talk about is trauma, there's a problem. Right. I mean, and at the risk of caricaturing DeSantis and the, and conservatives in America, I, I, I'm always cautious of us not creating a uh, a liberal bubble in which our uh, in which we caricature the, the the points of view of our enemies. I mean, I think that the the re the more reasonable there are, of course, racist crazies on the right in in all countries, including America. But uh, the 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 most generous interpretation that we can give of the people who would back a DeSantis-style education overhaul would be that, look, we're just trying to go back to the way that we understood slavery like five years ago or eight years ago. Like, we don't want to not teach it. We want to teach it in the context of it being a, a major wrong. But the, you know, the, the pushback that's currently happening, I think, in the United States, as I understand it, is that Kids are coming home from school saying, "Oh, we did an exercise today where all of the all of the kids of color and all of the white kids were separated, and you know, then we were taught about how the white kids have uh, have to take responsibility for the fact that they live in a white supremacist nation, and that all disparities of of outcome in America are caused by structural and institutional racism, and like that these are ideas that may be inappropriate for five year olds. So, I mean, I think that's the kind of I, thinking. I would be really suspicious. I mean, I know these claims are made, but I'd be really suspicious um, if that had happened with five-year-olds or indeed even ten-year-olds. Okay. Mm. Um, yeah, I don't know. But, I've, know I haven't I, done. I haven't uh, done investigative research into it. But that's the those. That's the rhetoric that you hear at the you know school board meetings and so on. Nonetheless, let's uh, let we don't need to go down that rabbit hole. So the question becomes: Yeah, at what point? I do. F I have a sense, and I think a lot of centrists have a sense that we're at some sort of a tipping point in the woke culture wars, where the fixation on the wrongs of the past has become counterproductive in our ability to come together and get big things done. But I'm not sure how to recognise that point without it sounding like I'm being one of those old Germans who's saying, oh, we shouldn't care about Nazism because we don't want to poo in our own nest. Sure, sure. So look, um, that's one of those questions which, like most interesting questions, you can't give a number for it. You know, you can say, well, I can go up to, you know, 7.0, and at that point <laughs> I have to stop. It's a question of nuance, how much of, you know, looking at national crimes and how much of trying to find um, national values that even if they were never uh, perfectly realized have been pushing forward, okay? And, you know, I, nobody's going to be able to give you a formula for that. You have to have some taste and some judgment. What I think that needs doing, and that's why I've just written this book, Left is Not Woke, I think you need some basic philosophical ideas to help you. And so my book is not centrist at all. 
I'm a woman of the left. I always have been. And I really read this book because so many of my friends who had spent their lives being on the left in many ways, very actively working for social justice, were having conversations in which they were saying, I guess I'm not left anymore um, because of some of the woke phenomena. And I felt, wait a sec, no, I'm still left. They're the ones who have changed. Mm. Uh, and it's a different understanding of left. So what I wanted to do in this book is to set out principles that I think the woke have unintentionally abandoned, okay? One of them is a commitment to universalism rather than tribalism. And that was always a left-wing position. It was conservatives who believe that you really only have uh, deep things in common with people of your own tribe and deep obligations only towards people of your own tribe. Whereas it was people on the left who said, no, 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 the tribes, you could embrace the whole world, okay? And this is why you care about and want to learn about um, freedom fighters in South Africa mm. or strike miners, um, you know, somewhere else or whatever, the, you know, indigenous people in the Amazon whose, you know, homes and lives are being destroyed, okay? And um, strangely enough, that, you know, the sense of universalism is a dirty word now. Um, it's thought to be something that's fake. And I think that's seeding something very important to the conservatives. The second principle that I would identify as left is a commitment to a hard distinction between justice and power. And, you know, that's a distinction that that we can get quite cynical about because so many claims that are dressed up as claims to justice turn out really only to be a power grab. We all, we, you know, we all know this. We all have examples of this from, uh, you know, sort of ordinary politicians, but you can also see historical examples. And of course, once again, it's often true that people make claims, you know, about justice that turn out to be hypocrit hypocritical and, um, you know, not... Uh, not genuine. But Susan, but where do you see this in, in wokeness? Because I, I hear wokeness as saying that there are institutional power structures that are unjust and that we have to smash and reform. So there is, that to me strikes me as an argument that there is something different between justice and power. You absolutely do hear that. But then at the same time, you often hear, um, you know, claims that what justice would be would be getting more people of a certain category in power, okay, rather than uh, justice. And once again, this is a very tricky thing. Um, people of color and women up until very recently were in fact often left out of responsible positions and that in itself is an injustice. But simply rectifying um, that injustice by insisting on diversity isn't necessarily 
um, a claim for justice. And then the third principle that I think is crucial to being left, that I think the left has sometimes abandoned, is the belief that progress is possible. It's not necessary, but it's possible. Now, you can come at me and say again, wait a second, I do see these work people working for progress, and I see them too, and some of them are friends of mine, okay? But they don't have the theoretical resources to actually do so. And if you no. um, talk to them for a while, they're, um, <laughs> far too many of them you know, basically went to school with Foucault. <laughs> who believed that every apparent step forward to progress um, is actually a more subtle form of domination. And that way of thinking has gone so deep into mm. the woke left that, uh, you know, it undermines the genuine work that some activists really want to be doing towards progress. Now, um, all of those three principles could also apply to most liberals. But there's a fourth principle that I uh, think is important for um, being on the left, and that's the idea that social rights are genuine human rights. They're not benefits, they're not safety nets, but that people, in addition to the right to travel or the right to vote or the right to speak, also have the right to a set of um, you know, social structures that we fortunately have in Europe. And I'm sorry, I don't know enough about Australia, but you don't have them in the United States. We United we just States, have we are clinging on for dear life. Uh, <laughs> yeah, we we do we would we are closer to the Western European model than the American model. I mean think Canada. Yeah. Think Canada basically. Okay. I mean anybody's better than the United States. You know, there's a huge <laughs> Strike that the uh, the Amtrak uh, the train workers have no right to um, take off when they're sick in the middle of an mm. international pandemic. And when I tell this to people in Europe, they look at me as if I'm mad. Um, so anyway, that's you know there was a universal de- declaration of human rights signed by most countries of the world in 1948. Uh, and uh, no country has ever completely instantiated them. But if you're on the left, you believe that, um, you know, universal human rights are a genuine aspiration and not a pipe dream. Okay. Right. I mean, and just to explain to people, that Universal Declaration of Human Rights includes a, a set of rights that some people, I mean, like the right to a free university education, I believe, that some people would regard as being on the boundary. I mean, we we, have, we got rid of that in Australia, actually. And although that there is no longer a financial impediment, an upfront financial impediment to going to university because the government will give you a, uh, an interest-free loan, a loan pegged to in- inflation uh, that you only pay back through your taxes once you start earning a certain amount of money. So there, so there is an, it's much more egalitarian than in the United States where it's profit-driven. Uh, Australia would fall afoul of, the, of many of those universal declarations of human rights that, but would still regard there as being universal human rights that are social rights like the right to not be left in the street starving or the right uh, to free healthcare, which we have and so on. So each, I suppose each developed country is going to find its, its borderline somewhere amongst those. Susan, the, the interesting thing, one interesting thing that I note that I 
wonder if you've thought about is the commitment to universalism and the belief in the possibility of progress, which are two of these three or four criteria that you're saying would put someone yeah. on the left. There is the lack the the lack in among woke circles in the belief in the possibility of progress. The claim that our societies, for example, let's take race. The claim mm. would be that it's naive that a, that a colorblind aspiration is naive and that to say we should all get along and ignore people's racial backgrounds and treat each other equally is just never going to happen. And therefore, we have to accept that we are different identity groups and the only way to get justice in the new model of sort of woke equity discourse is to proactively elevate certain historically disadvantaged groups because you're never going to you're never going to achieve the aspiration of treating all people truly equally that then feeds into i mean the it strikes me that the commit the, the lack of commitment to universalism and the disbelief in the possibility of progress are almost flip sides of the same coin aren't they they're very connected you're absolutely right look um color blindness always struck me as a very silly um, aspiration. I mean, unless you're literally colorblind, you see the difference between, you know, red and green, or you notice that somebody's shirt is blue rather than, you know, yellow. I mean, um, so the idea of becoming colorblind and not literally noticing how someone looks is, you know, um, I mean, it's just quite silly, right, right? But that's not what we mean by it in common parlance, right? We mean that I can t- I know oh, that no, you're. No, I know, I know, but it but, means but, we mean that we give it as much. We give it about as much relevance as your eye color or hair color or dress color. Yeah, but I think it's important uh, often when we're thinking about these things to actually look at what they would mean. We, you know, we're we're not careful with our words, and one thing that you know philosophy teaches you how to do is be a little bit more careful. Um, you know, I am not at all suggesting that cultural differences, you know, don't exist or aren't important. I, I use a metaphor that strikes me as uh, helpful. Universalists can believe that, uh, you know, we all have the same bones, which we do, um, and still understand that, of course, it's the flesh that comes in all colors and sizes. Um, and that, you know, puts literally flesh on the abstract bones of what we have in common. Histories and cultures are interesting. I mean, there's no question about it. Somebody that doesn't acknowledge the interest of different cultural traditions is, uh, you know, kind of trying to turn us all into robots, frankly. Mm. The question is whether we can look at those differences as a source of interest, pleasure, and even sometimes joy, um, rather than seeing them as a threat. Now, the only way that, you know, there's, there's literally not a way that people can do this for every person in the, you know, every culture in the world, okay? Um, what you can do, however, is to commit yourself to working your way into one or two cultures other than the one you were born into, all right? Hmm. But that really means 
engaging with the literature, with the music, with the language, hopefully learning another language. And doing so, of course, teaches you things about your own culture, not just about the other one. And then you realize both, you know, difference can be something that's quite beautiful. And at the same time, you see what we have in common. And, you know, that's my ideal of a universalist practice. It's not to erase the differences. It's not to be colorblind. It can be to celebrate them, not to see them as threats, but as things that enrich our own lives and teach us a lot about uh, where we ourselves come from. Because, you know, if you've never really engaged with another culture, you tend to think that your own is the default position of the world. <laughs> we all do. Yeah, we no, all do. Americans do. I'm sorry. <laughs> I, I am an American. There are many things I love about America and Americans, but that Well, Americans really do. I mean, I think we all, we all think that we're the default to some extent, but Americans actually believe it. Uh, this reminds me a little bit of of the controversies that flare up over asking people where they're from. You know, I don't yeah. know if you saw the the controversy at, the, at Buckingham Palace where one of the Queen's consorts oh, yes. was oh, yes, fired yes. because she, she asked mean... a woman of colour where she's from. And, you know, uh, yeah, I understand what you're saying about colourblindness. When you put it that way, I, I get that, of course, we should have a natural curiosity and affinity towards diversity. I mean, when I was raised in the school system in Australia, which is such a multicultural and such a new and young country, such a migrant country. I mean, my my dad came on a boat as a refugee from the Second World War. So that's the tale of so many Australians and so many people who'd fled Vietnam or Cambodia or, or wherever. The, 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 the idea of bumping into each other and being curious about one's background is fundamental to the kind of national psyche. And the 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 notion that you would have to curtail that or like just cauterize that that kind of sphere of interest in your life and and tread on eggshells and not want to trip trigger the tripwires of of polite conversation by pretending that everybody is the same or is so delicate that they're going to be offended if you're at your curiosity seems really anathema and I don't quite yeah, but, but know what to make again, of it. Again, you need tact, nuance, and judgment here. Okay. Um, the lady in waiting who asked the um, Afro-British woman where she was from um, should have left it if the woman said she was from, I don't know, Chelsea or whatever. She should have left it there. She should have been sympathetic to the idea that this woman, you know, in the first instance, wanted to be recognized as British. It's a very specific situation because, gosh, I can still remember some 30, well, maybe 40 years ago, no, 30, um, someone who was, you know, really quite a liberal lamenting that England was becoming so multicultural, okay? Right. Um, and it's a decent human being, but he just felt that what was being lost was this shared sense of history and culture. And, of course, you know, that attitude dies out slowly. Mm. You know? So if it's a person in power, an aristocrat at Buckingham Palace, saying, no, where are you really from? Well, we don't know. I mean, we weren't there. I, I had That was my initial instinct. And then I saw yeah. what she was wearing. And she was wearing Africa-shaped earrings and an African headdress and African bead necklace and the African colors. Okay. 
in a shawl. Yeah, so it would be fair if you're an 80-something woman whose job it is to find out why people are at the palace that you would want context around what that's all about. So then the question becomes... I mean, I don't want to tell anybody, but of course I have a problem with cultural, the whole cultural appropriation argument too. Um, if I want to wear something in African colors to Buckingham Palace, not that I've ever been invited, I think I should be able to do so too. <laughs> um, <laughs> well, then you would be fired my... from Buckingham Palace. Yeah, well, no, it's funny. I, I A friend of mine from Senegal um, came for a visit. I had invited him to a conference and he brought me a very lovely... Um, what would I say? Kaftan, okay? Mm. Um, from Senegal. Now, I happen to love, I was in Senegal once, and I love the craft work there. And, you know, I thought about, he didn't need to bring me anything, of course. I was slightly embarrassed, but I thought about the whole cultural appropriation. You know, should I tell Ibrahima that, no, I'm not going to wear it because it would be wrong for me to wear it? Mm. This was meant as a gift of something beautiful from his culture to his host, okay? Um, so I, I have deep problems with the whole, I have a, a, a friend, actually an Indian friend who uh, ran a series called Culture Is Appropriation. Right, <laughs> right. I mean, that's just it's just a mix. Well, any culture um, worth having is appropriation. I mean, the cultures, are the, yeah. the cultures that are the least appropriative are also the most boring. That's true too. Um, Anthony Appiah, the philosopher, has written a very good book on um, called "The Lies That Bind," in which I think he takes down the idea of cultural appropriation very well. Um, but the fact that you might choose to wear, um, you know, African earrings or whatever, you might choose it. I might choose it. This woman might choose it. Doesn't seem to me to have to imply that well, she's not really British, which is what this woman was implying. Well, is it and what the woman intended to imply or is it what was taken? I think it's what she was implying, frankly. Well, if that's true, um, then that's that's not right. But the, the cons- I think the reason why it became a global conversation is because if the only, if the only judge of whether or not that was the intent is the self-reporting of a person who belongs to an ideology that is becoming increasingly obsessed with self-victimhood, then it becomes difficult to know whether the narrator is reliable. I'm not saying this woman's experience wasn't true, but I'm saying do we hand over the authority to to judge our conversations and to determine the uh, contours and the boundaries of our acceptable conversations to people who openly exhibit a level of censoriousness and disproportionate offence-taking, sort of professional umbrage-takers, I sometimes take them, and like outrage archaeologists who will go back through things that people have said 15 years ago and note unfavourably that those things don't no longer comport with what the current yeah, well, vanguard of fashion is. That's... Yeah, that's among other reasons a problem because you know it undermines the idea ideas of progress. I mean, which are not only you know seen in terms of nations, but but in terms of people. People get better. I mean, things that were acceptable to do, um, sexist jokes, um, fifteen or twenty years ago. We've learned actually, mm. um, you know, that they reverberate uh, in in ways that are 
uh, it's not just that they hurt people. They have assumptions about women and our role in the world that we weren't aware of before. And, you know, the same thing goes about certain kinds of ethnic jokes or ethnic assumptions. So I think we've actually learned things. You say, well, should an 80-year-old woman be expected to learn things? Maybe. If she's in a social function at Buckingham Palace, she should be able to know that the repeated question, as we were told, it wasn't just, where are you from? I'm from Brixton or I'm from, you know, wherever. Um, but where are you really from in a in a way that very much suggested, um, you know, she wasn't uh, she wasn't entirely legitimate. You know, I've had that in a little a little bit sometimes in Berlin. Um, on a good day, I speak German without an accent. On a bad day, you can hear that I'm not a native speaker. And, you know, because people don't think very much of Americans <laughs> in places in the world, um, sometimes people will then respond to me in bad English. Okay? Right, yeah. Um, you know, which is usually, I mean, when this happens, it's quite a bit worse than my German. But then they will also, you know, the the where do you come from is not meant as a as an expression of genuine interest. <laughs> it's right. meant as a you don't really belong here, do you? Let me assert my authority here. So do so, we do we just have to trust the reporting of the person who's detecting that in the question? Of course not. People make you know people make mistakes and they do it your your right. Um there's a certain status uh i mean you in- say of course not susan but i think the consensus now in what w- wider society would be that yes you do that if i mean most of my friends on the left would say that if a person of color interprets something that is said as being racist then it is by definition racist that is what the definition of racism is if a woman you know perceives something as being sexist you don't get to say oh i didn't mean that as being sexist like that it is sexist by virtue of the fact that a female found it to be sexist and you can go but if a if a gay person finds something to be homophobic you have done the wrong thing you don't get to push back and be like oh i didn't mean it like that like we're over that whole conversation that would be the consensus well, attitude I know, and I actually don't think any of us is infallible. I think we're all, uh, you know, able to, uh, you know, we make mistakes, we misinterpret things, all right? Um, And, you know, the as people pointed out in the Me Too debates, uh, believe women, well, there are women who get it wrong. I think there ought to be, just because historically it has been so much in the other direction, I think there ought to be the first assumption that if a woman says a remark is sexist or a person of color says it's racist, I think it should be incumbent on us to consider whether it is, all right? Mm. Uh, And, you know, not to immediately say, um, well, that wasn't what I meant. There's a nice German saying, uh, the opposite of good is good intentions. You know? <laughs> intentions really don't count for everything, okay? so No, but they count know, for something, and they don't seem to count for anything in the current woke climate. 
It's a problem. I, I, I agree with you, but they don't count for everything. No. And, you know, if we have learned in the last five, ten years that we need to examine things other than just our intentions, that's a good thing. Okay. But I agree with you. If they count for nothing whatsoever, we're in trouble. Yeah. And when you say we need to account for more than just our intentions, that's a good thing. I would agree up to a limit. And then there comes a point at which it ceases to be a good thing when it serves only to impede honest and open and frank and rambunctious and spontaneous conversation and leads to a world, a climate in which everybody is constantly terrified of accidentally saying the wrong thing. I mean, you know, there was a lot so of... I don't know you, and yeah. I can't even see you. Yeah. <laughs> so I can't get a sense of <laughs> you. I don't know what you count as rambunctious. You know, we may have different ideas of rambunctious. Some people's rambunctious is, in fact, my idea of offensive, all right? Um, you know, this is going to sound... I, I'm going to, you know, repeat myself again, and I understand that people get frustrated because they'd like to have a recipe. It's a matter of reflection, self-reflection, and trying to have a sense of the person that you're uh, speaking to or speaking mm. with. Mm. You know? I mean, it, that's it, that's the aspiration, and yet it's difficult to retain that good faith when one feels that there is an ideological barricade that is being manned intentionally to try to catch people out. This is the professional umbrage taking that I'm talking about, that I think that people feel in workplaces and HR departments and in mainstream media and broadcast media and so on, that there's just a, there is a narrative script that if you stray from too far, the wolves are there at the door waiting to take you down. And they're not going to really give a shit whether or not you were trying to be a nice person and self-reflective. If you say the wrong word, then they're going to be on you. It definitely happens. I, I'd be silly to deny it. It's happened to me. You, you know, um, and I, I do think it's a problem. It's not really the subject of my book, but it is something that I've been thinking about, that I've experienced myself, and that everybody I know, frankly, is concerned about. And I, again, I don't mean, um, you know, sort of centrist people who would just simply like us all to get along. I'm talking about people with real commitments on the left who feel those commitments are being undermined by this sort of thing. Yes, so, yeah, yeah. It is a problem. Susan, I want to ask you a final few questions just for our paid subscribers because you're an expert on the Enlightenment specifically and I want to know how the Enlightenment is going in the 21st century. Um, so if you are listening to the free podcast, I hope you enjoyed this chat. You can subscribe at the link in the show notes and if you are already a paid subscriber, you are doing God's work. Thank you. Uh, Susan, the Enlightenment. You're an expert on it. How's it going? <laughs> um, great question. Look, um, one of my biggest problems... Is-